Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Back in the saddle and ready to prattle. It's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore and glad to be back with you with my colleagues coming in hot. It's Andy Bramson and Matt Cookham. Wow. I think, I think we broke Matt, Andy. <laughs> Man, it was so hot. I felt like the hot breeze was blowing right <laughs> off to, my computer screen. He had screen. to leave the screen and go turn Push on his back fan in my there. chair. The leaves, oh, they are a change in, but the heat continues. Um, welcome to this episode of Election Shock Therapy. Wow. It has been a while since we've been in your feed. It has been a busy semester here at Bethel for all yes, of us. Uh, we are participating in various kinds of newfound roles that are taking up a lot of our time. But we also know that the midterm elections are right around the corner. And so we wanted to come in with a quick hit podcast that we're calling, here's a little intro music for you, three questions. Each of us has a question uh, for another one of us. We're going to work through those three questions. And when we're done, we outie. So question number one, Professor Bramson. Yes. How, how much can we trust the polls in this midterm election? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I wonder about this because on the one hand, right, the polls seem to be surprisingly good for the Democratic Party, considering that they have the president in the in power um, and that, um, you know, often hurts you. Um, they look like they're in a good position to possibly hold the Senate and surprisingly good to take or to at least um, hold on to the House, according to the 538 assessment. Um, so the can polls you, look Can you decent. talk about what we mean by the 538 right. assessment? Yeah, so 538 has this great poll tracker where they basically like bring together all the polls, they aggregate them, and they show like, here's kind of the average of these. And then they also kind of throw in expert opinion and kind of, you know, the history of these states. And so how, how reliable should we should we count this on, on this bean? So they this looks better than we probably would have expected for the Democratic Party. On the other hand, I was just reading an article this week um, that says, you know, like, on issues that people care the most about, when you ask them, like, what issue do you care most about? And then you ask them a follow-up question of which party you do trust on that issue. Um, the Republicans have like an 11 point lead. And that's usually a pretty strong indicator of, you know, a party that's going to do well in the elections. Um, when that, when that gaps there, we usually expect them to do well. So there's always this question. I mean, like, and especially with the Republicans, um, there's been a tendency to underestimate how well they'll do the last few elections um, that the pollsters just don't pick on, up on that the best. And so I think it's, it's an open question. Usually it's within the margin of error, but it's, it tends to be closer to the end of the margin of the error that favors the Republicans. Um, so the polls have just, you know, not quite hit that midpoint, that sweet spot as well as we'd expect. So I would agree mostly with what you just said. So on, on average, over the last couple of election cycles, polls have been well within the margin of error in predicting the outcomes of elections. Although inside that margin of error, they've been tilted a little bit towards Democrats. They sort of undercount Republican support. But 
outside uh, disaggregating into specific races, some of those polling results have been quite far off, particularly yep. in certain battleground states. And I'm really thinking here about Wisconsin, for example. Right. Um, in the 2020 election, Joe Biden was perceived to have had a, a really large lead going into the final week of the election, and then just barely won yep. Wisconsin. So yep. essentially that whole lead evaporated. Now, mm-hmm. again, we have Ron Johnson, who is sort of picked by the Cook Political Report as the most vulnerable Republican in this year's uh, Senate elections, who looks like he's losing, or at least really, really close in uh, in his Senate seat. But if Wisconsin's as off as it was before, he might win handily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we explain this? Why, why pollsters have a huge incentive to be as accurate as possible? What's going on here? I mean, a lot of things. Um, so pollsters have to, um, they can't merely go out and just um, take a, a random sample of the entire population and then just weight um, the different subgroups in that sample to get a, a representative sample of the whole population. They they have to think about who is actually likely to, to come out and vote. Right. Um, and that's where the real trick is, right? Because yeah. um, who comes out to vote is not quite the same, is not quite representative of the whole population. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different ways to do that, right? So pollsters can ask um, people, have you registered to vote? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are your sort of registered uh, voter polls. Um, but as pollsters move closer to an election, they switch to using what's called a likely voter model. And um, and this is complicated. There's a lot of things that get baked into that. One of the uh, classic questions that pollsters will use to suss out who is more likely to vote is they will ask people, um, did you vote in the previous election or the election before that, right? That turns out to be um, the best predictor of of who's going to come out and vote this time around. But of course, there's always variation from election to election because um, people's enthusiasm for voting varies, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. Democrats are more enthusiastic. Sometimes Republicans are more enthusiastic depending on the election cycle. We know Mm -hmm. that um, during midterm elections, the out party, the party that is not in control of the presidency and Congress, um, sometimes is gunning for um, gunning to get back some of that control in the Congress. And they're wanting to sort of um, hold hold members of a counter- Congress accountable, hold the, the majority party accountable. And sometimes they're more enthusiastic. And, mm-hmm. and we see in this case um, uh, quite a bit of enthusiasm amongst Republicans. And so pollsters, as currently, as they are shifting into their likely voter models, they are trying to sort of bake into that um, a red electorate, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's really hard, though, um, when Republicans um, are sometimes less likely to actually answer the phone. Right. Um, or when people who are have less college education, right, or have less education, they're also less likely to answer the phone. Of course, those people tend to be more Republican these days. So um, so it's it's a really tough job. They basically have to predict yeah. um, turnout to some extent um, and who is likely to turn out. It turns out that's really hard. So don't be terribly surprised, um, especially given this is this is a midterm election and Republicans are the out party. Yeah. Don't be surprised if there's uh, Republicans outperform the polls a little bit. Mm-hmm. And a little bit might be all it takes. So oh, for exactly. example, right. Right. 538 right. has um, s- Democrats slightly favored to win the Senate. What they mean by that is if the Senate, if the midterm elections were held 100 times, 
uh, Democrats, they project win 67 of those races. Now, it's easy mm-hmm. for us to think about it like a scoreboard and say, oh, the score is 67 to 33. That's a blowout. It's not. It means one every three times Republicans win the Senate in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. And I think even more important is how they've modeled this in terms of a simulation. Most of the results are very close. And so the chances the Senate is split 50-50 with Kamala Harris breaking the tie is um, a 17% chance total. So that th- this suggests that there's a lot of clustering right in the center. And what's likely to happen is either a couple vote de- Republican lead or a couple vote Democratic lead or a dead heat tie, which in some ways is uh, pretty constrictive on whatever uh, Democrats might want to do with a legislative agenda. And if the, and if the Republicans win, what they want to do is just keep Biden from doing anything. Right. And I I think that means so um, there shouldn't there aren't all that many outcomes that would be truly surprising. Right. Right. Um, That are in sort of the tail of that sort of distribution. Right. So a huge Democratic blowout would be surprising. Yeah. Right. Or even Republicans picking up four. um, You know, it's possible that that would be surprising. But if Republicans pick up two or or the Democrats gain one. Right. Anything in that Mm -hmm. range. Mm isn't surprising no. um, and it's going to be relatively narrow. And so, so just, you know, keep that with you um, whenever we roll on to yeah. sort of the day after election day and everyone's talking about narratives and what's yeah. surprising, what's not, yeah. just keep in mind, like none of that narrow range of outcomes is all that surprising. And, mm-hmm. um, and really like what this suggests about the American electorate um, doesn't shift that much just because yeah. um, Republicans have happened to gain, uh, regain control of the Senate, right? That that's the shift of, you know, probably a relatively small group of voter, voters in a few states, right? So I mean, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. But um, but I mean, what I think what this demonstrates is that we are a very divided country and the division is is very close. We're kind of a 50-50 mm-hmm. country in a lot of ways. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, because we're so close and because we're um, unlikely to see, well, I'm sorry, because because, because the, party, the country is so divided and because some of these races look like they're going to end up being close, we might suggest that candidate quality might be an important issue this year. So it leads me to question number two. Uh, Dr. Kukum, we'll lead off with you. Does candidate quality matter for the battle of control of the Senate? Um, no. Um, or at least not very much. <laughs> Moving on. Wow. Ooh, that's provocative. Yeah, um, it, really, it really is. I want to come back at that, but go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, I would say this. Um, Character quality, or let me back up, candidate quality, sort of the ability of the candidate to be appealing, right, to mm-hmm. voters. Um, and and what, what makes a candidate appealing is a lot of things. You know, it has to do with their persuasive ability. Um, it has to do with whether they're perceived to be sort of a decent person, uh, someone who would be capable of sort of leading the charge, you know, in the Senate, for example. So there's a lot of things that sort of go into appeal. Um does candidate quality matter? Um, it matters on the margins, I would say. Um, if you're just an absolutely sort of outstanding sort of you know candidate with great appeal, that might help you a little bit. Or if you're like truly terrible on a whole bunch of different levels, that could hurt you okay. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, candidate quality doesn't make that much of a difference. Um Candidate quality can matter more in a Senate race than, let's say, an average House race, Um, because a lot of times um, 
members, people who are running for in these house races, um, they're not known as well, even in their own communities, right? And so yeah. a lot of times people are just voting for um, their representative um, purely according to party, right? Um, but senators and Senate challengers, I mean, they're they're more visible, right? Um, they also represent, for the most part, a broader constituency. They represent whole states. Mm -hmm. um, they're more visible. And so their quality can make more of a difference, right? Um, but I would suggest that um, candidate quality only matters on the margins. Um, and we could actually walk through very briefly maybe some of the key Senate races. Oh, I'd um, love to. Yeah. So, okay. So the Senate, of course, is currently split 50-50. Um, there's five key Senate races that you should, um, maybe six, depending on how you want to count it. I'm looking at Arizona, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nevada, and Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, and we could, we could walk through these briefly. Um, yeah, let's do, let's do that quick. Okay. So Arizona, um, I think, um, the incumbent, uh, democratic Mark. Senator Mark Kelly will yep. likely beat Blake Masters. And I think this is a situation in which um, candidate quality is making a difference. Uh, Arizona is a relatively um, Republican state. Um, and Blake Masters is a very extreme candidate. Um, he sort of brands himself as dark MAGA. Uh, he recently ran a TV ad in which he's brandishing a gun, suggesting it's used for mm -hmm. killing people, right? So just very dark, um, very extreme. Um, even though Arizona is is a relatively red state, um, there's a good chance that, you know, the Republicans running a, an extreme candidate is going to mean they're not going to pick this up, even though this is a seat mm -hmm. they could very easily yep. pick up if they ran a quality candidate. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. So I think Arizona um, sticks with the Democrats. There's Pennsylvania. So um, this Senate seat was held by the Republican Pat Toomey, who is retiring. Um, and this is a, a really sort of nationally publicized race. This is John Fetterman versus Mehem Oz, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Oz. Um, this is a very tight race. Fetterman is still several points ahead in the poll. Fetterman is lieutenant governor, by the way. Just yeah, to, exactly. Yeah. Um, the weird thing here is you have two candidates that are kind of meh, right? Um, one is not at all sort of your traditional Republican material, right? Right. Um, it's not even clear he was a Republican until, you know, a year ago. Um, but heavily other, endorsed by Trump, endorsed by Trump. Right. Um, and he has been getting better on the campaign trail, um, but it's taken a while. Um, He's John closing Fetterman, a lead that Fetterman has held through the last yeah, six, yeah, seven months. Yeah. yeah. Fetterman's chief liability is his health. Right. He suffered yep. a stroke. Um, that's raised a lot of questions about his recovery. Right. So um, so two sort of mediocre candidates, you might say, but for very different reasons. Um, mm -hmm. It's really mm -hmm. tight. Um, if I'd had to bet, I think Fetterman will pull this off. But we'll, yeah. Which would be a flip for Democrats, which, which would help them hold on to the 50-50 split. Yeah. Yep. So that, that's yep. kind of my prediction there. Ohio. Um, so this is a... OH. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'll let you talk about this, Chris, since this is your... Um, your sure. Um, J.D. Vance won a very competitive... Uh, Republican primary mm -hmm. and defeated a more um, a more MAGA candidate. But in order to do that, he had to move MAGA direction, right? So he yeah. had to sort mm -hmm. of um, yeah. move in a, in a populist direction within the Republican Party. He doesn't really fit the, pro the populist profile. Uh, um, he's a former uh, investment banker, um, but uh, he's continued that rhetoric since he's got in, into the, into the race. Yep. He has a, he has a, um, a, a slight, but pretty stable lead over Tim Ryan, uh, mm -hmm. the democratic candidate. And over the course of the last decade, Ohio really has drifted red. 
And so we would expect all other things being equal. This should be Vance's seat to lose, but he's been surprisingly anemic on the campaign trail. He's not really getting large turnout at rallies and things like that. And Ryan is essentially kind of outperforming a little bit. So there's a, I think Ryan has a puncher's chance here, but this is probably a Vance win. And we might say, um, you know, we, we have to think about sort of, uh, campaign abilities and candidate quality versus the fundamentals, right? And so when we talk about the fundamentals, you know, we talk about, you know, in midterms, the party that's out of power um, usually wins seats back in Congress, in the House and the Senate, right? That is probably one of the few constants in sort of modern American politics is is that trend, right? But you can also look at other things, right? So um, the economy being the most important, right? Inflation accelerated in office in in August, despite a drop in gas prices, right? right? But now gas prices are going back up because OPEC has announced production cuts. So the Mm -hmm. Biden administration is wringing their hands about this. We already see gas prices going up. Hiring is starting to slow down. Stock market has been wild. The Fed continues hiking interest rates, which is starting to cool off the economy. Um, Mm -hmm. And people are really exercised, understandably, about inflation. And that's not going to improve over the next five weeks. Um, All of that suggests that um, in these sort of um, Mm -hmm. these these really tight races, right, Right. um, don't be surprised if Republicans sort of outperform because of right. these fundamentals, right? Yep. So yep. for me, Ohio, yeah, the polls are all tied up, but given the fundamentals, um, you know, I would I would lean towards Vance pulling out yeah, a victory. For sure. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, Except that I would just add here with Ohio, it's interesting. I mean, it is an interesting comparison case too, because I think the Republicans are going to win the governorship handily. Like that's not going to be close. DeWine is going to clean up. Um, and because the Democrats probably got the best candidate they could have gotten in Ohio for their for that race, Tim Ryan, um, and the Republicans got a eh, so-so candidate, right? This is closer than it should be. That gives the Democrats a fighting chance. It probably doesn't come through for them. I agree mm-hmm. with that assessment, but it's it's interesting, right? It's closer. It requires more attention than it would if you'd gotten a really slam dunk candidate because a right. great candidate is going to coast in in Ohio in a year like this. And Vance is not that candidate, so he'll probably win, but he's not coasting. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to Georgia, right? So Georgia's (laughs) Republican governor is Brian Kemp, who is absolutely crushing his uh, Democratic challenger, Stacey Abrams, in the polls, right? Brian Kemp has been very adept um, in sort of threading a number of different needles, um, including with the 2020 sort of um, sort of dumpster fire um, with sort of the, the electoral count there. Um, and he's he's really popular um, and mm-hmm. he is mm-hmm. he's doing very well versus um, the Republican challenger for the Senate race. Herschel Walker is is the opposite. Um, he has major character problems. Right. Um, yeah. And so that explains why Herschel Walker is um, is, you know, only marginal for victory, if even that. Right. So I would, so I, would say, I would say less than that. I would say at yeah. this point. I'm probably seeing Warnock in in Georgia holding on to this seat. Yeah. Um, I think some of the uh, the it, the the system effects of this of this rate of the you know the climate we would expect Republicans to do better are really getting yep. washed out by the relatively poor showing that that Herschel Walker is putting together as a candidate yep. here. Warnock yep. has the power of incumbency, although it's been a very brief incumbency, mm-hmm. and I th- I think that might carry him over the, over the line. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, think just to give you a the quick 538 take here. I mean, they've got they've got Kemp at 86% chance of winning and 
Walker at 41%. That's a huge gap in, you know, in an era in which we're very partisan, we're very committed to our parties, but that suggests, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a number of people who are seriously thinking about, I'm going to send a Democrat to the Senate, but I want a Republican as my governor. Um, and that's, that's a surprisingly high amount of ticket splitting, but I think candidate quality says a lot about that. Yeah. I, I will suggest this. If Walker wins, it's because Kemp dragged him over the, over the finish yeah. line. And the right? fundamentals of the race that you were talking about. And the about, fundamentals right? of the race, yeah. right? So right. so part of it is like, well, you know, maybe um, these Kemp voters aren't going to switch over to Warnock, um, but they're going to stay home, right? Yeah. But the thing right. is, they're probably not going to stay home because they want to come out and support Kemp. Kemp. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and when they show up, they're going to be like, well, I'm just not going to vote for, for Walker. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not sure about that because a lot of, I mean, a lot of, um, a lot of Republicans in Georgia and reading some things and hearing from some evangelical leaders saying like, well, this race is too important. It's about the control of the Senate and right. not really about sort of the character qualities of a particular individual. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I still think it's a toss up, um, but we shall see. Well, right. And the other weirdness of Georgia always is, you know, they have to have 50%. Um, so mm-hmm. so they've yep. several times in recent years had a third party candidate win enough votes, right. which you could easily get. Somebody could say, well, first round, I'm going to cast a protest vote for yep. the libertarians or somebody like that. Um, so it could easily be the case that neither candidate gets to 50, in which case we run it off. And then you get the weirdness of runoffs where the turnout is just different. Yep. Um, and it's it's harder. That is even harder to predict. I mean, come back to my question, like the polling is really tricky on runoffs. Yeah. And that's when that lack of enthusiasm for Walker might sort of kick in. Like, yep. okay, maybe yep. voted for the first time, but like, I'm not going to, you know, yeah. make a special trip yep. to the polls to, to vote yep. for him versus people who support yep. Warnock is like, hey, we really can't have Walker be our senator. Yep. Right. So, right. Um, so I think if we do go to a runoff, I would want to say that paper's Warnock, but um, yeah, but we, we shall see. Uh, we should probably move on to Nevada, um, which has yes, not please. been discussed very much. Um, so uh, Nevada is currently. Um, Currently held by a Democrat, um, Catherine, Catherine Cortez, Cortez Masto. Masto. Um, yes, um, her challenger is Adam Paxelt, um, who I believe was the Attorney General for Nevada. Indeed, he was. Um, and and this is a situation in which uh, these candidates are fairly normal and non-controversial, which probably explains why they are not being discussed in the national media. Um, <laughs> How dare they be normal? I know. Um, but it's a fairly sort of conventional uh, debate about the issues, right? Um, you know, national level, national level issues. Um, so uh, the, this is a complete toss up. Um, they're, they're tied up in the polls. Um, party registration data in Nevada um, reflects a shift away from Democrats, even though Democrats still have a, a bit of an edge. There's also yeah. some sign that Hispanics are also shifting away a little bit from Democrats, of course, you have to think about the fundamentals here as well. And you have to think about mm-hmm. um, how basically uh, two thirds of three quarters of Nevada um, is in Las Vegas and they got absolutely hit by the pandemic. Yep. Um, and so they're really concerned about the economy. Right. So that suggests that, you know, there might be a lot of discontent. Um, on the other hand, um, the incumbent has raised more money. And she has the incumbency advantage working for her. So um, I think this is too close to call at this point. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and it's going to end up being really, really important because if Democrats are going to hold on to this 50 50 uh, split and therefore the majority, they mm-hmm. really can't afford to lose this Nevada seat. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, they, they could lose Nevada, but then they would have to like um, hold on to Georgia. And, and they got to get up. like Fetterman to win in Pennsylvania. And then and... they would need Pennsylvania. Right? Yeah. I don't think Ohio is going to happen um, for, for them, for Democrats. And I think, I think Mark Kelly's probably, probably safe. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So basically it comes down to Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada. Like you need two of those um, to get, um, get to 50. Let me ask one more. One more. I know that you've hit all your races. I've got one more on my list. You probably know what it is. Does Mandela Barnes have any chance defeating Ron Johnson in Wisconsin? <laughs> I don't know. You clearly five, have opinions, Chris. Five. Well, five thirty-eight has um, a, a, a vote share separated by less than three percent, um, and it's basically they're giving Barnes a one in three chance. Of yeah. defeating Johnson. Now, this this would work against the polling question that we asked Andy a few minutes ago. So mm-hmm. essentially, we would have to say that support for Barnes goes up in the last few weeks to give to give a real shot of be, of knocking yeah. off Johnson. But Johnson is a a notably vulnerable Senate candidate. He's not a particularly good campaigner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just it, it seems to me like if this if this is going to be an election that breaks in every right way for the Democrats, this is a seat that that they could possibly pick up. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible. It and, it and it certainly I mean, like they have a Democratic governor who's on the ballot who's an incumbent mm-hmm. who's, you know, slightly favored to win reelection, not big time. But, um, you know, so that that potentially helps Barnes. I'm skeptical they pull it off in the end. I think Wisconsin has tended more to the right than not in recent years. And again, those fundamentals, I think are just going to, I don't see what pushes them toward why would we want to elect Mandela Barnes um, in a year like this, but maybe, I mean, (laughs) I I mean, in my, in my mind, I think it's probably going to Ron Johnson, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, we've had polling misses before, um, and there's also um, there's actually been fewer really good polls in Wisconsin compared to the other competitive yeah. states. So I, I feel less confident about this. On the mm-hmm. other hand, I mean, despite his uh, vulnerability, the fundamentals are working for Johnson yeah. and um, and Wisconsin is a you know reddish purple state. Um, yeah. So if I had to bet yeah. money, uh, which I don't, but which you would never money, do here, because we never do, um, and I never have done. But if I were, I would you know bet twenty bucks on. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a like a good distinction. I mean, both Wisconsin and Minnesota are kind of purple states, but Wisconsin's a reddish purple. We're a bluish purple, right? Yeah. To be clear, I think we're both straddling that a bit but we're definitely more on the blue side than they are mm-hmm. yep i buy that all right guys that seems like it just about wraps things up doesn't it no we got a question for you how oh, worried okay. should we be about being nuked by putin or him dropping nukes on anyone for that matter? <laughs> okay when you say how worried should we be about being nuked by 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 Vladimir Putin, you you mean yeah. like here in um, here in Arden Hills, Minnesota? Right? No, I was I was referring more to we as humanity. Yeah, um, yeah, not, yeah. Us, not not like I don't think he's going to target like that Bethel University that really ticked me off. It's about time. Um, I hate that Go Royals ending that Moore always finishes with. Here, uh, here, here, I should point out that I am not the one of the three of us who has an ongoing relationship with a university in Ukraine. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, there is that. There is that. Yeah, that thought occurred to me. Like, well, if there's anyone that he's ticked off at right now. It's um, you. In Arden Hills, it might be me. But yeah, um, I have I have um, ancestors though who used to live in what is now the Ukraine. It was then the Russian Empire, uh-huh. and they fled because they were Mennonite. 
um, German Mennonites, um, mm-hmm. ethnic minorities, and you know the Russians weren't keen on them. So yeah. I don't want to bring that up with Putin, but yeah. I don't think he listens to our podcast often. I, I, I don't think this crosses his transom. No. <laughs> yeah, but, but in all seriousness, no. Uh, we were having a conversation uh, before this podcast, um, and I sort of you know raised the question um, about you know what what. What is the likelihood that uh, Putin resorts to using a tactical nuke, not dropping it on Kiev or whatever, but but you know launching yeah. it over the the Black Sea and basically issuing an ultimatum? Like, what is yep. what is the probability that? What are the upsides? What are the downsides? I have some thoughts, but I especially want to hear Doctor Moore. Yeah, thoughts. yeah. I, there's. I actually think it's important to do two things. Uh, the, the first thing is let's talk about what it means to think probabilistically. We mm. had just got done saying that according to 538, Democrats have a 67 to 33% chance of winning the Senate right. about two every three times. That doesn't mean that we should just ignore that one third chance Republicans have of winning the Senate, right? It happens one out of three times. And when humans are not good at thinking about that, we tend to hear 67%. We think, Oh, that's going to happen. No, it's going to happen two out of three times. I think there's probably somewhere in the range of uh, between 15 and 25% chance that if things continue the way that they are, that Vladimir Putin uses a nuclear weapon. Um, I think it's pretty high. Uh, now, you might hear 15 to 25% and think, okay, well, the chances are he doesn't. But there's a lot of scenarios that could lead to him using it. And Matt, you described one of them exactly. Russia has uh, nuclear devices that go from strategic strategic is the very biggest kinds of bombs. Those would be the ones you drop on cities to utterly obliterate them all to tactical, which are essentially smaller weapons with lower yields designed for certain kinds of uses, battlefield uses. They would not be great. I want to stress this against the current configuration of Ukrainian forces. Ukraine does not have its forces sort of bunched up in big tactical columns that's moving across the across Mm -hmm. uh, Eastern Ukraine. They're pretty much spread out into smaller units, manning artillery stations, things like that. They wouldn't be effective against... Uh, they wouldn't be susceptible really to a small tactical nuclear weapon. A small tactical nuclear weapon would destroy anything within, let's say, 400 meters or so. So even if you were just in a lightly armored vehicle more than a quarter mile away, you'd probably be fine. Um, And the radiation load for these is relatively small too. So you wouldn't want to be underneath it when it blows up, but you probably aren't going to suffer ill effects of radiation poisoning unless you hang out in the immediate area for a long period of time. Uh, all that to say, Putin can, possesses a lot of tactical weapons that he could use to essentially signal a level of escalation mm-hmm. to dare the West to respond. And that could be uh, blowing up one of these weapons in the atmosphere over uh, Ukraine or using them on a specific point location um, if uh, if he finds it to be advantageous to do so. it would To be clear, it yeah. would not help him win a war. What it would help him do is try to deprive his opponent of popular support. I actually think, though, it would have the opposite effect. One of the things that Putin has consistently miscalculated through the course of this war is the level to which uh, the West, the Europeans especially, but the United States were willing to consolidate around support for Ukraine. And I believe that if he tried to use a small nuclear device to intimidate the West, it would actually have the opposite effect. And I think that would be one of the few things that would cause NATO countries to actually mobilize support to act against 
uh, mm. Russian military forces. And unlike the Ukrainians, there are viable targets the West could hit in a conventional response against. So, for example, if he launches a small tactical nuke somewhere in, in Ukraine to try and intimidate, I could very easily see NATO forces sinking part of the Black Sea Fleet. And that would be a significant escalation, but I think probably an appropriate response given the net sort of global opprobrium we've had against nuclear weapons since the United States yeah. used two of them in Japan. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I have a question. Please. So, well, I have lots of questions. I'll, I'll start with this one. So one of the things we've seen from the Biden administration, for example, is sort of this this great hesitation about um, not wanting to further escalate the war and yep. this mm-hmm. insistence that we aren't going to um, put you at, I mean, we'll, we'll give them hardware, but we're not going to man the hardware ourselves. We aren't going to have our own forces involved because we don't want two nuclear powers to be in, at each other's throats in this conflict. Mm-hmm. So should the U.S. decide it wants to employ a conventional response to the use of the nuclear weapon that puts U.S. forces near Russian forces, that involves U.S. forces attacking Russian forces, yes, um, and that drastically increases the chance that um, things get out of hand. And I wonder, will the U.S., um, will the Biden administration want to risk that? And that's what I'm not sure about. I know I know they've been yeah. telegraphing that there will be catastrophic responses. And administration yep. has made noises in that direction, um, you know, and is sort of saying we're calling Putin's bluff, you know, and so yeah. on. But but I, I I'm wondering about that. No, I think it's a valid question, right? I mean, and we have experience in recent years, not with the nuclear question, but with uh, American presidents drawing red lines. And then backing off of those red lines when it was not politically expedient. Uh, the United States is not really threatened by this action. We always ha- have the option of withdrawing and going home and not you know, letting Russia do what it will in Ukraine or continuing some kind of sufficient military equipping. Ukraine is looking like they're doing pretty well right now. Thanks right. for asking. So yeah. even if Putin uses a small strategic nuclear device to try to sap popular support, the United States could basically just kind of keep doing what we're doing and hope the results remain the same, right? So yeah. it's yeah. not necessarily the case we need to escalate, but I think it's important that we signal that we would in order to try to keep the lid on that genie. Uh, I'm concerned enough about the use of nuclear weapons that I'm, my fear is that if Putin uses a small tactical device as an intimidation tactic, that that breaks that sort of long-term seal on a program against using nuclear devices and makes it so much easier for so many other places around the world to do the same kind of thing. Yep. Case in yep. point, uh, yep. uh, we just had uh, the North Koreans test another missile system, which could deliver a nuclear device. They didn't use a nuclear device, but they launched a missile basically over uh, J- uh, ter- Jap- Japanese territory. And uh, Japanese citizens were told to take cover in Tokyo and of course, the missile went nine, uh, 2,000 miles past Japan. But nevertheless, I could easily imagine a world in which North Korea uses a nuclear device to signal threat um, as opposed yep. if they see Russia yep. do it first. Yep. I'm not sure if that answers your question, Matt. Um, yeah, no, no, it does. Yeah, I, I would wonder if, I mean, it maybe depends on how that nuke is deployed, right? So if it's <laughs> over Ukraine, that's maybe a little bit too much and there might be a conventional response. If it's just over the Black Sea, 
maybe the or, US if, or if they like, bomb Snake Island or something like. Yeah, exactly. They're like, yeah, we dare you to use more nukes, mm-hmm. right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna attack you. We're just gonna give them like twice the hardware, right? Um, and maybe yeah. that's the approach. I don't, or or maybe they decide no, we we actually need to sort of your response. And yeah. I guess another question would be, um, if the U.S. um sits out, um, would you know Poland, for example, um, do something, right? Or some of the other the other yeah. NATO countries, or do you think it's going to have to be NATO acting as a whole in a, in a response? I think there will be strong pressure from NATO countries, particularly from the Eastern NATO countries sure. to <laughs> act in a unified way. If there's a nuclear right. device used. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping bring some clarity. Uh, another yeah, thing I absolutely. read too, um, which it gives me some, some hope is that, um, is that the use of nuclear weapons does not seem imminent because um, Russia hasn't done some of the staging that you would expect yep. that could be detectable yep. by satellite of some of the weapons in the, the locations that would be needed um, to sort of de- deploy them, right, and use them. Also, um, even though Putin has um, escalated the rhetoric somewhat over the past week, um, he hasn't um, made the sort of statements like we are about to use these weapons, um, the sort of right. rhetorical statements and escalation that you would expect if they're about to use the weapons and try to extract concessions with them. We haven't seen that yet. So, And th- there is a second round of, of, of betting, to use a poker analogy, mm-hmm. um, with the use of these weapons. So if Putin begins to take these weapons out of essentially storage right. and begin to put them into tactical battlefield positions... Um, it's an, the United States showed early on in this conflict, they were more than willing to make public uh, military intelligence to basically mm-hmm. telegraph what the Putin regime mm-hmm. was doing. And I think what would happen on both sides is that in telegraphing that, everyone's going to pay very close attention yep. to how China responds and very close attention to how India responds, because what Russia doesn't want is the entire world economically united against them. And right now mm-hmm. they don't have that. Um, mm-hmm. Europeans are sanctioning Russia and so is the United States. But um, India is buying more Russian oil than ever, and it's making up for it. It's allowing Putin's regime to essentially be hardy against these economic sanctions. If that goes away, this is a very different conversation. Yeah, and there'd be a lot of pressure on you know on India to not buy that oil if they start oh, using. Oh, absolutely. And even, even China would not look kindly upon the use of these weapons, and and, oh, yeah. and China's yeah, valuable sure. ally, right? Mm-hmm. I would say it's it is now Russia's essential ally. If China puts enough pressure on Russia, I don't see how this is possible other than an incredibly foolhardy move. Right. Right. Guys, this was fun. It's good to talk again. Yeah. Um, Thanks for listening. We're going to get out of your feed right now, but you can always reach out to us with your own questions. What would you like us to ask each other? And uh, we'll be back in your feed real soon. Uh, Reach out to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Lots of other great stuff on the channel. Uh, Better stuff than us these days since we've barely been in it. Um, (laughs) Give it a listen to. You can always reach out to the channel at channel 300 at gmail.com. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, thanks for listening. And until we're back in your feed next time, go Royals. (laughs) 